Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. Uh, we are in Genesis chapter 22. And if you, we're going to continue our study through the book of Genesis. So take out your outlines that are in your bulletins. Take out your Bibles. Open up the Genesis 22. I don't care if it's a paper Bible, if it's a smartphone Bible, it's an iPad Bible. I don't care. Open it up and get the text in front of you. For the last few weeks, we have been following the life of the man named Abraham. And Abraham, in the book of Hebrews, is called a hero of the faith. When we think of a hero, we think of somebody who's bulletproof and never does anything wrong. But let me tell you, we have learned as we've actually looked at him in Genesis, he's not a bulletproof dude. In fact, he has pawned his wife off as his sister twice and come within a hair breadth of her sleeping with another man. If God hadn't stepped in and saved the situation, he would have totally ruined it. Not only that, but the guy slept with the maid conceived a child, you know, through somebody who wasn't his wife. So our hero is definitely not perfect. But here's the deal. Over time, Abraham is learning to walk with God. Over time, Abraham is getting closer to God. In fact, Abraham is just like us. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, uh, I know the way we live now is totally different than the way we lived when we were first a Christian, when we were younger. In fact, we would want nobody to replay those tapes, right? We want to burn those tapes because we made a real mess of things in our early days. Thankfully, we have matured. And in this situation, we find Abraham is maturing too. In chapter 22, we have one of the highlights of his faith. One of the great hero moments of his life where he gets things right, even though it's really hard to do. In fact, Genesis chapter 22 is such a big chapter in the Bible that we're actually going to take two weeks to study it. This week, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 22, and we're going to focus in on the fact of tests. And God's tests in our life, because this is what you find, God puts Abraham through an incredibly tough test of faith. Next week, we're going to come back, use this very same chapter, and it's going to be Palm Sunday. And what you're going to see is that uh, the death of Isaac, or I should say the near death of Isaac, that was averted only by a substitute who died in his place, parallels Jesus Christ, who dies as our substitute in our place. There's a ton of interesting stuff in the way of parallels between Isaac and Jesus, and we're going to look at all next week. So before we jump into chapter 22, let me set the scene. Last week we were in chapter 21, and we saw that in chapter 21, Abraham had uh, gone to the U-Haul place. He had got a U-Haul, and he'd moved his family. They had moved from the area of Mamre, and they had moved to the region of Gerar by the Philistines. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us why he packed everybody up and moved. 
My suspicion is that since Mamre was only 20 miles away from the Jordan Valley, which is where Sodom and Gomorrah was located, where God had smite that entire valley, uh, burning the cities with sulfur, probably the smell of sulfur in the morning got really old after a while for Abraham, and he decided, you know, I'm just going to move to a new part of town. We're going to start fresh because this place is pretty messed up. So he moves to Gerar. It's an area by the Philistines. Now, you know, everyone knows in life, sometimes you have some rough seasons and sometimes you have some good seasons. Life in Gerar for Abraham is one of those good seasons. We saw last week that Abimelech enters into a peace treaty with him. So everybody is getting along really well. He has no enemies to fight, no wars to go off into. We saw last week that business was going extremely well for him. Life is good in Gerar. But probably the best part of all is he has a son. A son to enjoy named Isaac. A son that was born when he was a hundred years old. A son that God had promised him. In Genesis chapter 12, and he had waited 25 years for God to fulfill that promise. And here he is, life is good, business is good, and he has the son, the son he loves, the son he's waited for forever. You know, Isaac is the center of Abraham's entire universe. Wouldn't he be? Waited him forever? I picture in the morning, Abraham gets up and does chores. And you know who's going with him? Isaac. Isaac is doing chores with the dad. I picture him going around the ranch, and they're on one of those Polaris side-by-sides, you know, sort of hanging out together, father and son. They're laughing together. They're sort of poking fun at each other. Isaac loves his dad because his dad is his hero. And Abraham loves his son, the son he waited forever to get. And you know, when they're out there doing chores together, there's nothing to distract from their relationship. This is pre-smartphones. So you don't have like Isaac watching YouTube videos when he's on the Polaris side by side. There's no Snapchat, there's no Facebook. It's just father and son, mano e mano, one with another. And incidentally, this idyllic life in the land of Gerar, it goes on for a long time where Isaac and Abraham get to enjoy each other in a really blessed season. Last week, when we finished in Genesis chapter 21, we saw that Isaac was celebrating his three-year-old weaning birthday party. Here, when we pick up in Genesis chapter 22, scholars believe it was between 15 to 30 years later when this chapter picks up. So we have a fair amount of time that has gone on. I personally believe, and I'll, you'll see why as we go through the study, I don't believe Isaac is, young, is, is younger. I don't think he's like a 15-year-old. I believe he's between the ages of 25 and 30, and you'll see why in a little bit. But what you need to understand before we actually jump into this text is you need to have to understand the level of bonding that has gone on between Abraham and Isaac. 
When I think of Abraham and Isaac, just to tell you, I think of the relationship that I have with my sons. Just so you know, um, I'm really close with my boys. I love my boys dearly. I prayed, literally, when we got married, and even before we got married, I prayed that God would give me two sons. That would be my first two children. I prayed that my sons would be born two years apart. I prayed that my sons would be wrestling partners. I'm just being honest. Doesn't that sound carnal? But that is what I literally prayed. Now, let me just tell you a little update, by the way. One son was born February 1st. The other son was born February 19th, exactly two years later. Wrestling was a big part of my background. Wrestling is a big part of my boy's life. And this is how we would spend time together. You know, it's like you can't really do Greek and Hebrew with your, like, young kids. It doesn't work well. They don't like to parse Hebrew verbs. Trust me, it's hard enough when you're mature. And so what do you do with your kids? You do the kind of stuff they love. Rough and tumble, you wrestle. So when my kids were growing up and we were in Michigan before we moved here, no joke, we didn't have wrestling in our community, but I would take my kids two nights a week, we'd pile in the back of my big pickup truck and we'd drive to some of the nearby communities to wrestle. And then on the weekend, on Saturdays, we literally drove all over the state of Michigan to compete in wrestling meets. And it was a really good season. Because at the time, my kids were doing tremendously well. They were doing just great. And uh, I was dad, I was coach, and I was the guy who paid the restaurant bill after the meet, too. Which is a little more painful because they were starting to eat more, but it was fun. I loved those days. And when I think of Abraham, and I think of his relationship with Isaac... And the closeness that goes there, I think of my boys. Because, folks, I would do anything for my kids. I would sacrifice anything for my boys. My boys are in trouble. You say the word, and I am there. My boys have a really bad day on the wrestling mat. Everyone walks away in anger. I'm standing right by their side. Because they're my boys. I love my boys. I'm going to be there for my boys no matter what. That's the kind of relationship we have. Before we moved to Iowa, uh, we were wrestling down in Hesperia, Michigan, and we had a practice in a lunchroom, and it was a mat they rolled out. And Daniel was, you know, the youngest of the two, and he's rolling around on a mat, and he actually lands after a takedown, lands off the mat, and hits his head on that hard lunchroom floor. He gets up, he's got this massive goose ache on his head, and you know, he's like, I can't see straight, everything's double vision, and, and he's like, oh my, just totally messed up, and parents are starting to get concerned, and they're like, you got to get him to the doctor, you got to get him to the hospital, and I'm thinking, my son has brain damage. You know how that, you know, your father, you go into like super father mode, you know, I will get him to the doctor no matter what. So we leave Hesperia. I throw Daniel and the wife and everybody into my truck, jump onto the highway, because the only way to get to the nearest hospital is to drive back home to another town. We're in the middle of no place. So I'm driving down the highway, and by the way, yes, I'll admit I was top end of my truck. It was in four-wheel drive. It was pouring rain. And don't worry too much. My truck doesn't go that fast. It's old, especially in four-wheel drive. 
but I'm going there, getting as fast as I can to get my kid to the hospital because I'm convinced my kid has brain damage. We pull up at the emergency room. I drag him out, rust bust into the room. You're like, everybody else, back in the line. I'm here with my boy. You know, he has brain damage. And they're like, he's got the big goose egg. And so, you know, they get him there. And they start working on him. And then finally, the doctor says, I know what's going to cure him. I'm like, what's wrong? So he can get all this. He's seeing double vision. Everything's blurry. He's all messed up. What's wrong? Here's a paper bag. Just keep breathing into it. He is hyperventilating the whole time. <laughs> Nothing wrong with him. Just a big goose egg. But my boy. My boy was in trouble. My boys are the apple of my eye. I'd do anything for him. And you have to feel that. You have to experience that and know that. Otherwise, when we turn to Genesis chapter 22, it'll just glance off you like a bullet off a rock. You have to feel the depth of love that Abraham and Isaac have for one another. Now let's look at the text. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. Like, okay, hold the phone, guys. Did you, did you just read this? Take your son, your only son, the son that you love, the son who is the apple of your eye, and murder him. Now, thankfully, Moses, when he wrote this down, he tells us right in the front end that this is a test. But who doesn't know this is a test? Who doesn't know? Abraham. He doesn't know. He just knows this, that God was very clear. That he heard God's voice say very clearly, Take your son, your only son, go to the region of Moriah and take his life. This is the boy that Abraham looks at in bed every morning before he gets up and sheds a tear. A tear of thanks that God had given him to him. I told you earlier in the message that there's a number of parallels between Isaac and Christ. And incidentally, here is one of them. I'll just give it to you now, even though we have a number of these to look at next week. Um, he is to go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him on a mountain there. Do you guys know what else goes on on Mount Moriah? Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. This is where Solomon is told to build the temple on Mount Moriah. Moriah. This is where millions of lambs would be shed. Their blood would be shed in someone's place to cover their sin. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years later, dies on Mount Moriah to die in our place for our sin, 
as our substitute in our place. You see, the sacrifice of Isaac, the long-awaited promised son of the Old Testament on Mount Moriah, parallels the sacrifice of Jesus, the long-awaited promised son of the New Testament on Mount Moriah. Can, can you see how these are going to go together? In fact, the New Testament Christians would often go right back to Isaac and say, look, look at the parallels here. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. You have to read this, and you have to connect with this. Sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. Do you know what you do with a burnt offering? Remember Leviticus? What he's going to have to do is slit his son's throat. And after he bleeds out, he's going to have to take a knife and cut up the body of his own son. Then he's going to have to chuck his body and his flesh onto a burning pile of wood and consume his son and burning him down to ashes. This is mind-numbing. This is like a scene from a triple-X horror flick. It's exactly what it is. I mean, as a father, folks, I cannot imagine the idea of having one of my sons die. It's totally repulsive me to think of the fact that someday I may preach one of my children's funeral. Think about the fact that your son dies, but your son doesn't just die um, because of some unknown reason, but your son dies because of you. And it wasn't just an accident you did, but it was premeditated murder. That's why your son died, because you willfully chose to take his life. This is what Abraham is facing for the son he loves, the son he lives for. Are you grasping the gravity of this chapter and these words? Now, by the way, you may think this is completely far-fetched, but in this day, you have to realize that the Canaanites, they sacrificed their children in worship to God. So Abraham is probably going in his mind like, God, I didn't think you were like this, but the Canaanites do this kind of sick, demented stuff. Now you want me to take my son and do this? So in his mind, there's a degree of some kind of plausibility, even though this makes absolutely no sense. Let's continue in the text. How does Abraham respond? So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, notice this, read this text. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Isn't that weird? What I find, let's start at the top here. What I find shocking is Abraham's immediate response to God. Early the next morning, what does he do? 
gets up first thing. No sleeping in. No arguing with God. No asking for reconfirmation from God. He just obeys God's words. The Bible is silent as to what he is thinking in his mind at this point. But I think that is because he is in sheer agony. Agony at the thought of taking his own son's life. But here's something that I think we need to notice. Abraham had learned over time this about God. That his job was to obey God's words even if it didn't make any sense to him. His job was to obey God's word even if it didn't make sense to him. His job was not to figure out what God was going to do, but only to obey what God told him to do. Remember Genesis 12, where he almost completely lost his wife to Pharaoh? How did that all come about? By him trying to figure it all out in his head and do his own plans? Remember Genesis 20, where he almost lost his wife to Abimelech? the leader of the Philistines. How did that come about? By Abraham trying to figure it out all on his own because he was fearful rather than trusting in God. Abraham has learned the lesson. You know, I may not be able to figure out God's words, but if I just obey God's words, I can trust him. I almost lost my wife twice. I certainly don't want to lose my son. So, this is what happens. He takes his two servants, he saddles his donkey, he cuts up the wood because apparently on Mount Moriah, it's a very desolate place. There is no wood up there. They take what is, by the way, a 50-mile trip. It's a three-day journey. And Isaac, it says, uh, for him, this is what Isaac is picturing. He knows nothing about what's going to happen. For Isaac... This is a God-appointed camping trip with Dad. That's exactly what it is. I think Isaac just was loving this trip. Just him and Dad together in the wilderness, going out to offer a sacrifice to God. I don't picture him riding behind one another. I picture them riding next to one another. I picture Isaac just uh, talking with his father. I picture him at this age probably talking about girls and life and excitement. Because for Isaac, everything in his, light is, in his life is green light. Everything is looking up. The world is his oyster in front of him. And he's with his dad, the dad he loves. And he has no clue that he's marching to his own death. Now, I haven't taken my sons, and regrettably so, I haven't taken them on a lot of father-son camping trips, like Abraham and Isaac did. But I have taken on a few, and usually, by the way, they have to do with wrestling. Sorry, that's what it is in our family. Uh, I took one in 1994 to a father-son wrestling camp in Wisconsin, where we got to spend time with Ben Peterson, John Peterson, and Dan Gable. And it was neat because uh, there's other fathers and their sons. And I, with my boys, you know, we, we cooked on the campfire together. And we, we played games together. And we ran in the, the mornings together. 
and the boys wrestled, and I got a chance to coach them together. And it was just a wonderful, amazing time of just father and sons. You know, none of those girls, because mom would let you make sure you change your underwear every day. But, you know, now that it was just the boys, you know, we could wear dirty clothes all we want. It was bonding time, and I will never forget this. This is when I had my old F-150 truck. We're driving back from Wisconsin. David and Daniel were in the back seat. It was one of those extended cab models before they had the four doors. And I'm in the front, and they're in the back so they can beat on each other like they like to do. And all of a sudden, they reach around the seat, and they put their arms around me. And they say, Dad, thank you so much. We love you. This is the best. We love being with Dad. And their arms went back, and they sort of fell asleep on each other. I looked in my rearview mirror, and there were my dirty boys leaning on each other asleep. And just all of a sudden, out of this year, just no place, I just burst into tears. I was bawling. This uncontrollably bawling, not because of sadness, but because of thankfulness. It's like, oh God, thank you. Thank you so much for my two wonderful boys that you gave an answer to my prayer. I love them so much. I'm so thankful for them. I love this time, just the two of us being together. I'm never going to forget that. I think this is the moment that Abraham and Isaac are having as they're on the way to Mount Moriah. Father and son together. Guy time in the wilderness. I can't even imagine what Abraham is feeling in this moment in his heart. None of this makes any sense to him. But let me just remind you, Abraham has learned I obey God's words even if it doesn't make sense to me. Obey God's words even if it doesn't make sense to me. I can trust God with the results. My job is just simple obedience. In fact, he believes that that's all he has to do when he can trust God. Because you notice he said to his servants, he said, we will worship and we will return. How do we return unless Isaac is going to be in an urn? When you kill him and you burn him, it doesn't make any sense. But here's the deal that, I, that Abraham had learned. God had promised that it would be through Isaac that he would have his descendants. That's God's promise. But now God had told him to kill Isaac. So how do you have descendants through Isaac and you have to kill Isaac? It makes no sense. Okay, God, it's not my job to figure out the results. All I have to do is obey. That's my job. In fact, it says in the book of Hebrews that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. Because killing his son and having descendants with his son don't make any sense together, but he believed that somehow God would do it because God had always been faithful to his word. Remember last week? God always keeps his promises. He's not like a politician. And folks, this is one of the very practical lessons that we struggle with. 
which is just simply obeying God's words, especially when it makes no sense in daily life. But it's one of the lessons we have to learn, and we take it right out of this text. Let me give you an example, stuff I run across all the time. Uh, Hebrews 13.4 says, Let the marriage bed be kept pure, and God will judge the sexually immoral. And in our culture, almost everybody, they live together and they sleep together before marriage. The majority of people that come into my office and say, hey, I'd like you to marry us, Pastor Kurt. And I'll ask him, I'll say, well, are you guys uh, living together and sleeping together? They're like, oh, yeah. And I'll say, well, I ask out of respect for God's word and to honor that as Christians, you need to, you're under God's hand of judgment for that. Live apart until you get married. You know, God forgives Let's honor him and move forward. And what people say to me again and again is, I can't afford to live apart. And my answer to them is, yes, you can. It's a test. It's a test. Will you obey God's words? Because you see, on paper, it may not work out. On paper, it doesn't make too, any sense to have one person living in one place and then paying to have another person living in another place. But you know what? It's a test. God will take care of the results. Just obey his word. That's all it is. I'll give you another example. Mark 10, 19 talks about the importance of not cheating and having absolute honesty. When I was uh, in school, one of the things I discovered in grad school is that you used to be able to get a hold of previous year's tests. And you could sort of study, you know, guys would pass it around, you know, previous year's tests. And what would happen is uh, the teacher would sort of rotate through like one of five final exams. And everybody was studying the previous year's tests. And you're like, we, we shouldn't be doing this. And then these people start to say, if I don't study these final exams, there's no way I'm going to pass this course. And if I don't study these final exams, everyone else is going to get an A. And because of the curve, I'm going to be down here on the bottom of the scale. It's going to ruin my GPA. You know what that is? It's a test. It's a test, just like Abraham faced. Our job is to obey God's word, trust the results into God's hands. Every time Abraham tried to fiddle with the results and do funky things along the way, he messed it up. Obey and trust, and God will take care. Let's jump back in the text. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the wood, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. This is amusing to me. This is pretty cool. How much wood are they bringing up this mountain? Like, like three twigs? You think a lot? They're bringing up a lot of wood, and they're doing it in how many trips? One trip. Now, those guys who are saying that Isaac is 15, trust me, he's not 15. Isaac is a big dude. 
He is a full-grown man. He is a stud. He is like an NFL lineman. He has a ton of wood on his back, and he is climbing a mountain up which the animals cannot climb. This guy's a beast. What's dad carrying? A knife and a little ball of ashes. Like, he's waddling. Isaac is carrying the huge burden. Now, Isaac asked the obvious question. Like, Dad, we have the wood, we have the knife, we have everything, but like, where is the lamb? We need something to butcher. When you have an offering and a sacrifice, you need something to put on the sacrifice. And this is all that God can, Abraham can say as he's probably choking back his tears. God will provide. God will have to provide. Because he knows that unless God provides, his own son is going to die. And 2,000 years later, on that very same mountain, God did provide a substitute. A substitute to die, not just in Isaac's place, but in your place and in my place. That substitute was his own son, Jesus Christ. See, the only way that Isaac's death can be averted is if there's a substitute who died for him. And the only way our death eternally can be averted if there's a substitute that dies for us. Let's continue the text. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham builds the altar. He, he puts the wood on it. And then he takes his son. But here's where it gets interesting. I always pictured that Abraham sort of grabbed his son, bound him against his will, and then hefted him over his shoulder and tossed him onto the pile of wood. But that makes absolutely no sense. Remember, Isaac is a stud. He just carried all of that wood up the mountain by himself, single-handedly in one trip, where Abraham, all he could do was just waddle his way up. So how does Abraham bind Isaac and put him on the altar? Because trust me, Isaac could easily have overpowered his dad. Here's how he does it. Isaac let his father do it. Isaac submitted himself to his father's will. 
I think at this point along the way, Abraham had been told Isaac that you are the sacrifice. That we're trusting God to provide. And if we don't, we're trusting God to raise you up. And Isaac, like a submissive son to his father, agreed to be bound. Isaac agreed to lay on that altar. Just like Abraham doesn't understand what his heavenly father wants him to do, but he obeys his word. Isaac doesn't understand what his earthly father, why he wants him to do this, but yet he obeys his word and is submissive to him. And in the same way, Jesus Christ, on that very same mountain, was submissive to his heavenly father and laid his life down in our place. Sons, I want to talk to you. Sons, this is an incredible example for you. An example of how you should deal with your father. Because as you get older, sons get a little bit more like, hey, I know what to do. You know, I, I know better than my dad. Dad wants me to do this, but what does he know? He's an old fuddy daddy. I'm going to do my own thing. The example scripture sets for us is sons submit to the will of your father even if you don't understand why they say what they do. That's Isaac and Abraham. So your dad says to you, hey, I don't think you should be spending time with this person. And your heart is saying, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about. Submit to your father's will, even if you don't understand your father's wisdom. Your father says, you know, I don't think that's the right girl for you to date. I don't have good vibes about that one. And you say, Dad, what do you know? I mean, I am like the king of the class. I'm dating this girl. Submit to your father's will, even if you don't understand his wisdom. Your father says, uh, come to church. You need to be in church. And you say, well, hey, Pastor Kurt's a bore. I don't want to listen to him. Submit to your father's will, even if you don't understand his wisdom. Your father says, pick up your Bible, son. Read it on your own. You don't have to necessarily understand why he says that. You need to submit and obey just like Isaac did to Abraham, just like Abraham did to his father, just like Jesus did for his heavenly father. I want you to picture these moments. Picture Isaac bound hand and foot, laying on the wood on top of the altar. Isaac's Huge dude, NFL lineman kind of size guy, but he's trembling. He's shaking like a, like a leaf. And his eyes are, are locked with his dad. And on his face is terror. On his face is fear, but it's also trust as he looks into his father's eyes. The father that is his hero. And I don't think Abraham's stoic either. I think Abraham is there, and he's looking into his son's eyes. The eyes are locked. And big, huge balls of tears are just running down that leathered face, cascading through his beard and dripping onto the trembling chest of his son. And Abraham is saying, it's like, I got to do this. I'm going to have to slit this throat good. I got to do it like one shot. 
I want his death to be quick. I want his death to be painless. I, I don't want this to be drug out. This is terrible to think of killing my own death, my own son. And he reaches for the knife and he holds it in the air and he grits his teeth. And right before he drops it to slit the throat, the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, calls out to him, Abraham, Abraham, stop. Now I know that you fear me because you have not held back your son, your only son, the apple of your eye that you love. You were willing to obey me no matter what the cost. And God came through at the very last minute. Doesn't you notice how God always comes through at the last minute with a substitute? Because he hears a rustling in the thicket. He turns around and looks, and there's the ram that God had providentially had caught in the branches right up there where they're about ready to offer the sacrifice. They killed that ram. And as they killed that ram and sacrificed as a burnt offering, can't you see Abraham and Isaac with their arms around one another? Can't you see Abraham and Isaac just bawling together just out of sheer thankfulness that God had come to the rescue, that God had provided a substitute so Isaac didn't have to die? Just bawling. Never again to forget that moment. In fact, the little comment in the text is pretty neat. It says, that place became called the Lord will provide because there God provided a substitute for Isaac. And it, it became said that on the mountain of the Lord, God will provide. And remember, this was written 2,000 years before Jesus came because on that very same mountain, 2,000 years, God provided a substitute for you and me. What does it say in uh, John? When, jo when Jesus first comes on the scene, John the Baptist says this about him. Behold the Lamb of God to take, who came to take away the sin of the world. He came as our substitute to die in our place for our sin. This is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Now, some of you, some of you are still unsettled about this triple X horror scene out of Genesis chapter 22. The thought that God would tell somebody to take the life of their own son. Let me just help you a little bit. Number one, God said this was a test. He never planned to complete it. It was a test of Abraham's faith. Number two, why was this such a gruesome test? Because God providentially wanted it to picture exactly what would happen 2,000 years later on that very same mountain where Jesus Christ would give, who is God's own son, would die in our place for our sin. Now, I told you that I would... Uh, try and look at this through the lens of God's testing. And I have a little bit of time, so I'm just going to tell you a few lessons for testing out of this. Why does God test us? And I'm going to jump to point number three. 
because I think that's the one that I really want you to remember. God tests our faith so that we pass it on to those we love. God tests our faith so we pass it on to those we love. This test was not just for Abraham. I want you to realize this test was also for Isaac. Isaac had grown up in Gerar, where life was comfortable, life was smooth, everything was good. He heard the stories about how God had rescued his mom twice. He heard the stories of his father's great wars. His father and mother had taught him all about God, but Isaac had never experienced firsthand God coming to the rescue. Isaac had never gone through anything where he could smell, taste, and touch what it meant for obedience in the life of his father when it was very, very hard. Up to this point, it had always been God stories, and uh, rather, dad stories, rather, and dad's God. But after this point in Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac said, it is our stories. It is our God, because Isaac experienced what it meant to trust God in the face of audacious circumstances with his father. You see, he knows how much his dad loves him. But he also knows what God told his dad to do and how hard it was for his dad and that he obeyed God in the midst of what looked like an outcome that made no sense. Isaac, for the first time, heard God's voice on that mountain when Jesus called out to Abraham to stop him. Isaac experienced God providing a substitute. You see, moms and dads, let me just mention this to you. We often think that our job is to pass our faith on to our children, and we do it by giving them Christian education and bringing them to Awana and youth group where they learn more Bible information which is very good and very important. But something else has to happen. Your children have to experience God. They have to experience it through your life. They have to watch what it means like for you to trust God in the face of audacious odds, where you obey God's words when it makes absolutely no sense in the world. And people say you're nuts. They have to see what it's like for you to get on your knees and call out to God and ask for his rescue and to see God provide it. They need to be part of that in your life because if you are going to pass your faith onto your children, your children have to see you wrestle with God and obey God in real life. And until they see that, you can't pass the face on to them. Because what happens is when they get older and then when they go out on their own and they face a crisis moment, they're going to say, I remember when I grew up and I was in my home and we didn't have a job and my father got on his knees every night and my father called out to God and asked him to provide and God came to the rescue. I saw it. I learned it. I experienced it with my dad. And now that I don't have a job, I know what to do. Because I walked it with, through it with him. Mom and dad, sometimes you're going to face trials and you're going to face crisis. And the reason you face trials and crisis may not just be to grow your character. 
but God in his love puts them in your life so you can pass your faith on to your children, not just with information, but through experience. As they see you walk with God, follow God, and they do it with you, you trust him together. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for the story of Abraham and Isaac. Lord, I, I think of the phrase, the only thing worse than watching your child die with Christ is seeing him live without him. And Lord, we know that oftentimes that for our children to have real faith and authentic faith, they don't just need, me, need more Bible information, but they need to see our faith lived out in our life. So I pray that you'd help us who are moms and dads to be faithful to you, especially in the trials you allow in our life so our children can see about what it means to trust you, provide, and look to you, and have you provide to carry us through. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.